don't get the transplant within two years, you're going to die. And your next hypoglycemia episode might be your last. And so she referred me to a transplant hospital. And that is kind of like how the whole process of um, saving my life from hypoglycemia unawareness started. Okay, so today I'm joined by Brandon, um, who has an incredibly interesting story and manages to provide both perspectives um, of being diabetic and effectively cured. But I'll say that with a pinch of salt, as we'll explain uh, explain a little bit later. Um, Brandon's obviously an active uh, member of the Type 1 community, and I'm sure many of the people listening to this um, will be familiar with him and his story. Um, And someone whose posts, for me, have always been incredibly positive and informative. Um, And to be honest, someone I'm incredibly excited to get the chance to speak to. Um, It's a story that's almost certainly going to be different to anyone else who's featured or probably will feature on this podcast. Um, So I'm looking forward to delving into it. So Brandon, Good evening for you. I know it's pitch black here for me, but how are things in California at the moment for you? Uh, dark as well, pitch black. <laughs> uh, we're going into the night, but hey, thank you so much for that introduction and having me on. Not a problem at all, not a problem. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it's pitch black for both of us. That makes me feel a little bit better, but... <laughs> Um, and how, how are things generally in uh, California at this time of year? Is it, um, is it, is the weather still pretty impressive or is it starting to get pretty chilly over there? So it's cooling down. Um, but we, every day we have the sun and then in the afternoon as the sun starts going down, it gets cool again. So you can still go out in shorts and flip-flops in Southern California, <laughs> but you definitely need uh, a jacket or a hoodie at night. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a little bit different to where I am in uh, to where I am in the UK. But then, I know, looking over to Canada and places like that, it's a lot colder than where I am. So, <laughs> silver linings, oh, yeah. I guess. <laughs> um, oh yeah. And I know things generally over there, you know, looking across the pond, it's, it's difficult not to mention um, the pandemic. Obviously, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more detail later on. But um, in terms of your perception of how things are going, um, is, are things starting to improve? Are things slowly getting worse? How, how, how are things over there? Because I'm, I'm conscious that um, as much as we seem to think we know what's going on over in the States, there's a lot of kind of conflicting reports. So as someone who's actually in California... How are things for you? Is life pretty far from normality at the moment? Yeah, nothing has has re nothing has resumed um, to a point where it seems normal. Um, California is broken up into counties, mm-hmm. and each county gets to set its own rules and regulations um, that are um, government uh, here in California first says and then the counties can make rules according to that so if i were in la county there's a curfew as to when businesses can be open and can be closed and they just shut down all like outdoor dining and that kind of stuff whereas in the county where i'm in which is next door called orange county mm-hmm. everything is open um but you but like you have you're required to wear a mask indoors and and that kind of stuff so in terms of uh, like what you see on California, part of it is true because in LA County, it, it, it's very mysterious as to why the numbers are just 
are so much higher than it is everywhere else because it, it's very densely populated, but only in one little area. So it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because, you know, what you see is probably very similar to what, what I see here. Yeah. And I, I don't even know what they're talking about. <laughs> um, so it's something that we're, that, that is being taken seriously, but it's hard for the American to be told that they can't, that, that you can't leave your house unless it's something for essential. Mm. Um, but then we have like the hardware stores open and, and um, our big like box stores are open and you can go take your kids there, but you can't take them to the park. And so it, it's very odd, conflicting information that they provide us. And uh, I think if they gave a little bit more, explanation as to the mm. importance and the safety of it we would do a little bit better so it's just an interesting perspective yeah i think it's a common theme um unfortunately that although there's rules and i'm sure they're in there for the for, for the right reasons um there's a lot of conflicting rules which ultimately leads to people sort of losing trust in them um i think that sounds like it's the story over in in the states and certainly <laughs> seems to be the story here but we'll see how it goes as i say it's um it is always interesting to hear from someone who's actually living there as 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 i said i'm conscious that um when you read reports there's always kind of two sides and it might it might be completely different when you're actually in that place um Heading backwards a little bit then, I guess right back to the start, um, obviously I mentioned right at the top of this podcast that um, you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Um, I think I'm right in saying you're about three years old, um, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so how did that journey begin, I guess, how was that for you? It must have been, you know, a shock for your family also. Yeah, yep, so you're right, and um, I was, I was diagnosed at the age of three. Uh, I grew up on a chicken farm. And uh, diabetes doesn't really run in my family. So my mom uh, says that I was like this happy, go lucky, fun kid that was always doing something to being a lethargic, um, looking very sick, standing by the water um, container because uh, we lived on well water. We had to have water delivered. You would drink it out of the out of the thing instead of the tap and I would just sit there and drink water and pee all day and they knew something was wrong <laughs> so yeah. they called uh, my doctor and the doctor told me that I should go to the hospital and that's when I was diagnosed so it was a shock because this was back in like 1987 um, and you just had uh, testing your blood and giving yourself injections um, and there was no carb counting, none of that kind of stuff. It was all right, a guessing okay. game. And you, had, and you had to eat enough food to make up for the insulin that you took. And then if you were active, you had to eat more food. And so it was just a very um, big learning experience. And we, as I think as a family, my parents did a very good job at figuring out how it worked. And then me as a kid, just never feeling like I was the odd one out. Yeah, um, yeah. And always making sure my parents made sure I was included in everything. So like if I played a sport, um, my dad would coach it 
to keep an eye on me for low blood sugars. And if someone at school had a birthday and they were going to have cake and ice cream, my mom would bring me angel food cake. And back then they only had one type of ice cream, which was a sugar-free vanilla <laughs> little pint. And she, and she would make sure like she brought that. So I didn't feel left out as yeah. a kid. Yeah. So yeah, like that was my my childhood. I I was the only diabetic that I knew, mm. and uh, everyone kept a really close eye on me. Yeah, and I guess you know it's, it's something that I've spoken about with with um, the other guys that I've had on. But in terms of the age that you're diagnosed, I do think it makes a huge difference. You know, for me, um, I was eight years old when I was diagnosed, and that sort of allowed me to. I guess spend the majority of my the years that I was really sort of growing up and doing the things that kind of change you with diabetes, which made it a little bit easier. Whereas I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, for guys that are diagnosed maybe 16, 17, that's a huge moment in your life to have everything kind of flipped on its head. Um, I don't know if you agree with that in terms of obviously being diagnosed at three, that you sort of have such a short span where you don't have it, that it's very quickly becomes normal and would almost be abnormal not to have it yes yeah very well said i i agree i think being diagnosed later um in age is far harder Mm. to understand and grasp than it is when you're younger well i think being diagnosed younger is crueler (laughs) um (laughs) you know what i mean because no of course you didn't get that opportunity to experience other things but it's far easier to get into the swing of it than yeah. it is uh when you're older yeah i don't i don't i didn't remember life without it mm-hmm. um I, I was too young i certainly don't think it's something that uh yourself and i are both celebrating having having being diagnosed young but um i i know i do think i agree with you and that there are advantaged um so in terms of i guess your time with diabetes so growing up um you know um in the states and and Another topic that we've talked about, obviously, over here, I'm incredibly lucky that from day one, um, for the last 15, 16 years that I've had diabetes, um, I haven't had to pay for a single thing. So I, I get my insulin, you know, provided, I get all my test strips, I get uh, Libra sensors, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, through, through the NHS system. Um, and obviously, looking over to the States, I was sort of unaware of quite how much insulin cost um, until fairly recently, which is, which is ignorance on my heart, on my part. Um, but how was that actually growing up and, and being able to afford that? Because I know for some people, it is just not possible to, to afford everything they need or, or in an ideal world, everything they need. Yeah. So growing up, it was not a bottle of insulin was not nearly as expensive. And um, it was kind of when insurance, like you would get health, like health, getting health insurance was normal. Yeah. Um, you know, f- families really wouldn't have it uh, unless, and you have to pay money every month for the health insurance and it, and it grants you options of coverage. And then you have to pay a percentage of that coverage. So if you go to a doctor's appointment, you still have to pay like $50 and they charge 250 for it or whatever, or you go to the pharmacy and you get your insulin and your, and your test strips. Um, and then the insulin is covered 80%, you pay 20. And then the test strips cost about a dollar a piece. They've always costed that much as I remember, and the insurance doesn't cover it. So growing up, I really wasn't 
as aware of that until I had to start paying for everything on my own. But <laughs> uh, it wasn't as expensive as it is today. And also without the diabetes technology, mm. things are a little bit more affordable because you're, you're just reliant upon the injections and the test strips and then the insulin. Um, I really think that when Humalog the fast acting insulin came out is kind of when the price of insulin changed because right. it was always um, they only had, they had three types of insulin. It was like a 50, 50, 50 mix in and R <laughs> and those are the insulins they had been out for like 30 years. <laughs> and then uh, the fast acting one came on the market and it kind of it really drastically started to change the way diabetes was treated. Um, that's when the insulin pumps started coming out and that's when prices really started to change significantly here. And, but yeah, so growing up, um, my parents paid cash for everything and I didn't know the cost, the cost of it all, but compared to today, it is impossible to afford being a diabetic unless you get a really really high paying job and mm. most of your income would go to your health yeah yeah i think it's one of those things that um you know certainly because you are generally diagnosed quite young and you're told you know this is what especially in the uk that this is the system um these are the incidents you'll be on these are provided by you know the nhs which is our mm -hmm. national health service i think there is a ignorance to some extent of quite how difficult it is in other countries and certainly when I've been speaking to people over the last couple of years um, there's quite a push and, and certainly feels like quite a movement within the UK to be able to try and do something um, to support those in the US bec just because we do have the privilege of, of, of not having to worry about that um, and I think even if that movement is just making sure that there's a greater awareness or greater education of those in the UK that look over in the States, this is quite for the same thing. <laughs> this is how much you'd be paying. Um, and, and I think that's quite important just to be aware that, you know, it, it isn't a level playing field often, which, which is frustrating. Um, but I know there's a lot of charities trying to do amazing work to move forward with that. Um, yeah. And let me just clarify, like, for uh, most people, I'd, like I'm not speaking for all, but for most people, um, that you are able to afford insurance, and 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 just because a bottle of insulin is four hundred dollars or three hundred and twenty-five dollars, whatever it is, mm. doesn't mean that all of the diabetics that are on insulin have to pay that full price. Mm. They're paying for like. Um, the NHS provides it for you mm. here in the United States. We have to pay for our health insurance, which is kind of like the NHS. Yeah. And then you have to fight with them to, to allow you to have the insulin and then you have to, and you're paying for it. And then you still have to pay your percentage. So we're not, not everyone is paying the full rate. Mm. Um, but yeah, so it, it is cheaper, but still it, it is a significant amount of money and people do die because there are pockets and there, there are things called donut holes where you either don't make enough money to qualify for subsidies or you make too much money, but mm. not enough to um, afford insulin. And so you're stuck in that middle where you just, you got, you have to figure it out or you don't get access to insulin because you have to have a doctor's 
prescription and you have to be able to afford it um, at a full price to pick up from a pharmacy. And um, it's, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic going on. And like, like you said, like just bringing awareness about it because a lot of people have no idea until they're in that spot and then and they don't know what to do. Yeah, of course. No, I can understand. It's interesting you talking about people falling between the cracks. It's not, yeah, it's something I hadn't thought of that even if you're making enough money, in theory, there's still that, you know, the possibility that you might slip between the net, which is unfortunate. Um, I guess moving forwards, um, I know you were diabetic for, for a number of years and and then I believe um, complications started after you had kidney stones. Um, is that correct? Yeah. So I was a well-controlled diabetic for my entire life. Never had uh, complications or issues, was never hospitalized for anything, never even broke a bone. And uh, <laughs> here I am in like my late 20s. And all of a sudden, I have this terrible pain in my back. And uh, and I think as a diabetic, we just we get used to pain easier, like we have a higher pain tolerance. So here I am, this um, pain, I was like, ah, it, it might have been from a hiking. It, it, my, it, who knows? It could have been from anything. Maybe I bumped myself. Who knows? And um, after about a week of me saying that, <laughs> I finally uh, knew that it, this was not something that was going away. And it got to the point where I, I, it felt like I was having the worst low blood sugar I ever had, but it was from pain. It wasn't from a low blood sugar. I kept testing my blood and trying to get that all figured out. And I finally went to the hospital and it turned out that I had two kidney stones, the size of my thumbnail. So like, if you look at your thumbnail, imagine that two of them being in my left kidney oh. and it was, and it was septic, which was why I was so sick. Mm. So then um, they needed to take me to surgery and they were able to break up and remove the stones. And then they said, okay, you're good to go. Everything's good to go. Um, your kidney function is, is, is good. And uh, you can get home and go back to life. And that's when things started not being as, con my blood sugars were not being as controlled as they always had been. Um, and that was kind of like the turning point in my life with diabetes yeah and then i mean the just uh, yeah i'm sat here looking at my thumbnail thinking god <laughs> that just uh doesn't look enjoyable in any way um no and it's and it's unrelated to diabetes um and why it was in one white both were in one kidney and that big they they all they all just speculated you know they just like it, it must have been they they must have been growing for years and mm. they couldn't figure out if it was diet related or they they just had no idea um and, so and it I, was, I oh, guess I, sorry i guess i guess for you um you know when when you were at the doctors and when they discovered you know it's kidney stones although it's um you know it's far from ideal it was probably a sense of relief at that point um thinking oh you know that that's what's causing it at least there's an answer now um when in reality obviously i'm i'm aware that from then the the, the problem sort of continued to stack up for you yes exactly because it was it was that feeling of all right figured it out got it done move on with life 
Mm. Um, yeah, and it just it it unfortunately didn't happen that way. Yeah, and I believe so. Obviously, the, the kidney stones removed. Um, as we said there, that, that was that was sort of job done. Um, and then from there, it was hypoglycemic episodes um, that that were sort of happening for you gradually, and but happening to a degree that you were unaware of, whereas previously your, your hypo-awareness had been quite good. Um, and then it was the number of hypo-episodes. Is that, is that roughly along, along the right lines there? Yep. Yeah, it's a, yeah, that's exactly what started happening. Um, as a diabetic, you're, you're used to having hypoglycemia. You get the symptoms, you feel it, you correct it, that kind of stuff. Um, what ended up happening was I no longer could get those early symptoms and catch them so by the time i would notice it they would be well into the 40s before i would even uh, i forget the math <laughs> no 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 yeah yeah what, I, what it is over there I, um, yeah i mean you're down sort of low threes at that point i think in, in into twos at that point for, for for us over here yeah so i mean it's low to the point where you shouldn't be conscious and that's when i would start noticing um where my vision would get so bad that I couldn't even see. And because your brain is slowly shutting down, right? It shuts down logical thinking first and all because it's trying to save energy. And so that it was getting to that point um, where I started noticing it was a problem, but it took probably about a year for me to notice it was an actual problem because you just think, oh, it's, it's a low or, or let me change my um, eating habits. Let me make sure that I have extra candy on me, extra juice with me. And you just, you make do with what's going on until you hit a point where you notice that, okay, a problem is going on because I am running out of my uh, snacks and I am running out (laughs) of my juice every day. This is a problem. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the route that I was on. I was working back to normal everything was good and then it was like okay things are not good um what can we do and so i you know i called the doctor we got an appointment and the doctor told me to eat graham crackers and protein before bed and everything would be good to go (laughs) and uh sadly that was not the case (laughs) so i guess from that point on you know when you're at that point i think as you, as you mentioned, when you're diabetic and, and something like a hypo, which, you know, many people have maybe one hypo a day or, or a minimal hypo or, or a, a few a week, it's, it is very easy to say, oh, I didn't even feel that one coming. You know, it's very easy to say that at the time. And then when something's happening daily or weekly, it's very easy for that to build up and not think anything of it. So I can completely understand how you were, you know, for, for quite a while sort of saying you know it's fine it's fine it's fine um and also i guess to a degree you know if if, if i was in your shoes i guess to a degree i'd be thinking you know i don't really want it to be anything else you know i want it to just be a little bit of a lack of hyper awareness so i'll just put it down to that um mm-hmm. yep. so I, I i guess i guess at what point then you know, at what point then was was a, a transplant discussed? Was that, um, I presume that wasn't, you know, after cram, graham crackers and protein, I presume the next step wasn't a transplant. Yeah, so I, um, I finished law school and during my last year of law school, 
they kept going back into my kidney that they did surgery on and kept trying to, to repair it because it would scar up and it would get septic again. And that is what they kind of blame the hypoglycemia unawareness on because insulin is processed through the kidneys. When you have one that's not working, then it's going to cause problems. And so the idea was we got to fix the kidney, whatever it takes, and then you'll be good. So uh, after the first surgery in 2015, six months later, uh, I was back to have surgery for my kidney because it was not functioning again. And then that uh, winter, uh, I ended up having like four or five surgeries um, of them kept going into my kidney and putting a nephrectomy tube coming out of my back to drain the kidney because it wasn't draining. Mm-hmm. And uh, they finally just said, we're going to cut out the bottom fourth of your kidney and reattach everything. And I said, okay. And they did that. And then they said, I'd be good to go. And then a year later, it was right back in the same spot. Um, and that's when my blood sugars just were getting to the point of me being found unconscious daily, me passing out on the train coming home, um, waking up to EMTs that people would call or the paramedics, the emergency, the emergency personnel, um, and then me almost being pronounced dead. And that's when I really knew that something was wrong because I had been through all of that and I was going through all of these things. And so I was like, I need answers. So they removed the kidney completely because it was unsalvageable. And they just said, well, we might've been too aggressive when we went into the kidney originally. (laughs) Um, And they, you know, they try to write it off as uh, it just didn't happen. Right. Or whatever. And I I was fine. I was like, get the kidney out of me. If that's what's causing the problem, I I, I can live with one kidney, but as a diabetic, that's terrible because Mm -hmm. if, if you run into some hiccups, your kidneys are the ones, you know, that get hit first. And so there was like that whole discussion, that whole caution. But I was like, look, one hypoglycemia episode can kill me. And I'm more concerned about that than I am the long-term health of my kidney right now, because I, I need to at least survive long enough to see what can happen. And so finally they, they took it out. And then, uh, so the hypos kept happening. It got worse and worse. And like when we're talking about frequency, uh, it was to the point where days would go by of me having low blood sugars and I wouldn't know that days went by. Um, I would just go out of it and then I would, I would correct it or be found by somebody um, at work or whatever. um, Yeah. And it would be days. I wouldn't know what I did. I wouldn't, (laughs) I wouldn't know how I got to from work. I couldn't remember. And then I got a hypoglycemic alert dog And he helped me out significantly. So instead of having maybe five to 10 uh, hypoglycemia episodes a day, I would have maybe one or two really serious ones. And he would catch uh, all the other ones because I was wearing a CGM and I would be testing my blood. But the issue with that is it's at the end of your capillaries. And if you're going from a completely normal blood sugar to one that's so low so quickly it can't catch it because it's about 10 to 15 minutes behind live time yeah and it would be that amount of time that i would already be passed out before it would alert me so the dog 
could do it live time. And he would come up and paw me and I would know immediately, okay, blood sugar is going low, drink juice. And that helped me significantly while I was able to go from doctor to specialist to specialist to doctor to figure out what we could do. And eventually I went and saw a new doctor and she said, you need a pancreas only transplant. It's the only way at this point that you can come back from what your body is going through because you got to think of your brain like a like a car battery mm. car batteries die and you can jump them and they could hold a charge but, but only for so long and that's what's happening to your brain and your body every time you have a hypoglycemia episode things are shutting down that aren't meant to be shut down yeah. um your brain synopsis are collapsing. The gray matter uh, is very significant in your brain and your body is going to fail. So if you don't get the transplant within two years, you're going to die. And your next hypoglycemia episode might be your last. And so she referred me to a transplant hospital. And that is kind of like how the whole process of Mm. um, saving my life from hypoglycemia unawareness started trying to get a transplant. I, I, I never, you know, I've heard of them. I didn't know that it was for like, like um, the hypoglycemia unawareness issue. Um, I knew that they were done if you got other organs at the same time, it, it can be done, but I was unaware that you could have a pancreas only transplanted to save your life and so there i went <laughs> trying to figure out what that meant how i get it done yeah. and the whole process of that it's it's yeah i mean it's there's so much to sort of take in there and it's it's it sounds you know i guess for you firstly um it must have been you know a period of your life where you were very much surviving you know rather than living because i know you know even on a minute scale, if I've had two or three hypos in the night, you know, just from poor control, that when I wake up, you know, I feel like I've been hit by a bus. Um, mm-hmm. And it is, it just wipes you out. And it's it's like having this horrendous hangover. So to, to go through that every single day, I can sort of relate, but can't relate because I can't imagine, you know, how that was feeling. But also for you, not only physically, but I guess mentally, not knowing or not being able to work out, you know, how do I fix this? You know, how do I actually stop myself going, look, I'm doing everything I can, and yet it's still happening. Um, so I guess mentally that must have just been a huge toll on you for, for that period of your life. It was, it was bad. You know, for my whole life until that point, I had control over my diabetes. Mm. And at that point, diabetes had control over me. And there was nothing I could do about it. And I was frustrated as heck. Doctors thought it was psychosomatic, that I was making it up, that the, the charts of my um, CGM were inaccurate. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it, um, it was because it's very rare to be, to be that bad um, without really doing anything. And it, 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 like, especially when you find out like, okay, my stomach is not is unable to process food correctly 
because of these low blood sugars, it, it puts a pause on everything. And then the insulin isn't being processed correctly through the kidneys because the kid, I mean, my remaining kidney, because the kidney is being damaged from the low blood sugars at the same time. So nothing can work in tandem or conjunction correctly because so my yeah. body was literally failing. And so I was frustrated. I was anxious as heck because, um, so many times I had gone to bed and never woken up until someone found me. Uh, you know, so I got a roommate. It, it completely turned my life upside down to a point where it, it was so miserable. I knew I had to fix it. Otherwise, like my goal, I was like, can I just get back to being a controlled diabetic? Like, can I just get back to that point? What can I, I was willing to do absolutely anything. And we tried everything and nothing worked. So I, I felt like a failure. I felt my, like my body was betraying me and I didn't know what to do until I got the answer of you need a transplant. And it kind of like, it sparked a new um, ability in me to, to say, okay, now I have an answer. Now I know what is wrong. Mm-hmm. Here's how to solve it. And, it. and it fueled the fire for me to really seek that out, even though I was... I did. I, it was every day. I just, it, it felt like an elephant sitting on me and, mm-hmm. and mentally your brain just doesn't work. You're in this brain fog of confusion constantly. And so um, I don't know how I got through that, no. but I did. And I, and I, I will say this, I, I think having the diabetic alert dog, having to take care of him, having to feed him, having to take him out, that kind of stuff really helped me mm. feel like I had a, had a purpose, you know, even though that it was it, like the purpose of my life was taken away from the hypoglycemia, but having him really gave me that pur- purpose every day because I had to take care of him. And it was unfair for me to ignore that. And I think that's what helped me out a lot during that time as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the training that, you know, that the, those dogs in general, have and and the ability that they have is is just amazing i've seen um a few sort of hyper awareness alert dogs um in action and and it is just mind-blowing um i've obviously seen pictures on your instagram and you've got an incredibly cute one um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad that he that he was not only useful for you but also as you, as you as you talked about gave you a purpose i think that's been important but i guess also another thing um you talked about that really sort of hit the nail on the head there is when you're talking about control because I think as diabetics in general and certainly within you know the community especially online or on social media it is all about controlling it it's about controlling your diabetes so it's not a huge part of your life it's about being able to do all the things you want to it's about making sure it's you know it's in it's in a certain range so that you're a healthy diabetic so it's all boils down to control Mm -hmm. and I guess when one thing takes away that ability you know for me if I have a bad day or if my controls whack out of whack for a few days or a week you start thinking ah you know you get really frustrated with yourself because it's something that you're constantly trying to make sure is is perfect or trying to achieve or Mm -hmm. trying to achieve so to then have something where there's nothing you can do you know that control is completely taken away from you Um, I can imagine again mentally quite how draining that would be for you um and not only for you i guess for your family as well watching you having to go through that 
Yeah. And uh, you know, it's interesting. So I was living in uh, the next state over in Arizona. It's a six hour drive from uh, where my family lives in California. Mm. And I was there because of school and then I got a job. And, and so it just, it worked out. And then I got sick and all my doctors were there. So I, I stayed there and they didn't see me for a little while and they saw me <laughs> and they thought that I looked like a walking zombie. Right. Um, you know, I, I was telling them what was going on and they understood, but they didn't understand until they saw me. Yeah, and physical um, toll on you that physical toll like like my brother says you look dead in the eyes and mm. i was like well thank you but when <laughs> good I to see back, you too <laughs> yeah like thank you but that's them showing concern and like when i look at uh photos of me taken back then the couple that i can find you can see it in my eyes it's just mentally i'm not there i'm in this um survival state where uh, I am just trying everything I can to mentally be there and to do what is required of me before I can go lay down and let my body recover and I can keep closer track of my blood sugar so I don't go unconscious again. And that is not a way to live. You know, it, it is not, it is not fun. It, there is no purpose to it whatsoever. And going through that is just, it, it's hell. Um, so I think, you know, like, like you said, it, it's like that whole aspect of control when it's taken away from you and you have tried everything you're, you're left without knowing what to do. It's like, what do I do next? Like, what do I try? What else can I Google? It, 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 you kind of run, you run out of options. And when you get to that point, it's one of those things like, what am I going to do? And you, you got to start somewhere. Mm, <laughs> uh, no, of course. And, yeah. And for me, it was doctor's appointments. Um, but I had to go to a lot of them before I got an answer. Yeah. So from that point, um, from that point where you had that that meeting that proved so important um where they said look you know it's pancreas transplant you've got two years um which again just just to hear those words must have just been you know i can't i can't i can't imagine how that would make you feel but to hear that and for for the doctor to tell you that i guess from that point to the point where you were in in surgery there was probably quite a lengthy period um, between or maybe I'm wrong and I also assume there was unfortunately probably quite a lot of money had to be raised um, to afford the transplant I'm, I'm, I'm guessing yeah so this okay so here's the strange thing to go back to like American healthcare. so I until t- the year 2015 I believe mm-hmm. the summer or May May 2015 or June something like that um the Affordable Care Act, we didn't have. So mm-hmm. the insurance companies ran um, health care and they decided what you could and what you couldn't have. Medication that was covered, medication that wasn't covered, procedures that were covered, not covered, all that kind of stuff. Well, um, until the Affordable Care Act, which was passed in 2015 here in the States, if you had a pre-existing condition, the insurance companies were allowed to discriminate against you and not provide you health insurance. 
So what people with pre-existing conditions did is they went and, and found jobs that offered health insurance because that way you were grouped in with people who didn't have health problems and yeah. you were accepted within a large group. So I became a high school social studies teacher so that I could get health insurance. Okay. And even then I had to pay monthly for it and then I had to pay for all of my supplies and all that kind of stuff. And I would say it was about almost half my monthly income would go to doctor's appointments, diabetic supplies, all that kind of stuff. And I was happy with that because I had coverage. Mm -hmm. um, but then in 2015, the law came in, in to, um, place and I could then apply for insurance and the pre-existing condition of having diabetes didn't prevent me from getting coverage, meaning it granted me freedom. I could go and I could pursue a new career. I could go and I could live somewhere else. I, I was able to do new things. And that was one of a really big turning point in the United States for anyone with a chronic illness, um, especially a, a diabetic like me. So I was able to, to, to change things. And I got an insurance plan. And um, when it came to me checking on my insurance plan to see if it would cover my transplant, they first said, yes, it's on the list of things covered. And then um, two hospitals denied me um, candidacy because I was so un like they, it, they said it wouldn't be a successful transplant because I was, I, I only had one kidney mm -hmm. and I'd been a diabetic for almost 30 years. Um, and I was so uncontrolled at the time, uh, that it wouldn't be a successful transplant. So then, um, I finally found, uh, Mayo Clinic, which I don't even, I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're known, like they're, they are what known as the best hospitals in, in America. Okay. And there's um, one in it just happened to be one in Arizona and <laughs> a, a different doctor referred me there. And they explained to me like how the whole insurance thing worked, why it wasn't covered. Um, I sued, I, I, I tried to do everything that I could to get it covered. And I got a letter in the mail telling me that while we agree this procedure is medically necessary under the affordable care act it is an optional coverage for us as an insurance company to cover it therefore we've chosen not to cover it so it it's in it's written in law that a pancreas only transplant is an optional coverage for insurances and it makes sense if you're an insurance company and you're in it to make money, why would you offer extra coverages? Yeah. Yeah. So here I am. I fell through one of the loops, one of the holes. I fell into the crack. And to have the pancreas only transplant, I needed $250,000 up front to provide them. And then they would uh, consider me candidacy to be uh, – uh, to um, have the transplant. So uh, that was a huge thing that I had to figure out because if, if someone were to tell you, hey, you need to come up with the price of a house tomorrow to live, mm. where, do you, where do you find that money when you haven't been working because you're sick, 
mm-hmm. <laughs> you rent a room. Um, you, you know what I mean? You have no assets to your name. Uh, I had student loans. And so it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I, where do you, where do you even start? You can't yeah. get a loan from yeah. the bank. You have no assets. You know, your, your, your parents don't have money. They don't have wealth. It's one of those things where it's like, shh, <laughs> I, yeah. I don't even know what to do. Yeah. And and meanwhile, I'm dealing with all the hypoglycemia and stuff like that. So like that became the biggest like task I had to think of and, and try to figure out. Um, yeah. So it was $250,000 up front. It's just to, yeah. I mean, to, to think about that, you know, it is not an amount that people have in their back pocket. You know, it is certainly not an amount that most people, um, even in their thirties that are sitting on. Um, and as you say, I think to, to be told, look, you know, this, this is what you need. This is the operation you need. This could solve all your problems. Um, and then say, oh, but it's 250,000 pounds or it's thousand dollars. Then, you know, it, it's such an emotional roller coaster there. And, and I can imagine the stress and anxiety of trying to figure that all out, you know, where you're going to get the money from, but to do that whilst, you know, you've already said, whilst you were just focusing on surviving, um it's it's some task so where did how, how how did it happen because obviously you managed to get the transplant but how did that process happen and was it was it quite a lengthy process before you managed to raise that amount yeah so i'm a pretty oh what's the word i would um not frustrating i'm a pretty like I'm kind of set in my ways. I forget the word that I'm looking for. Okay. So one of the things was I didn't want anyone to know what I was going through. Mm. I didn't want family to know that I was suffering. I didn't want friends to know I was suffering. I never told people that I was a diabetic unless you were someone that had to know. Um, It was something that I, that I hid because growing up, it was looked at as a hindrance. You were looked at as less than, Mm. um, you were, look at, you were looked at as weaker. It was seen as something that if you told an employer, they would then think that you you couldn't handle things. And so I kind of grew up with that mentality and I kept all of that kind of stuff to myself. Uh, hard-headed is the word I'm looking for. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Very yeah. hard-headed, right? <laughs> okay, so I was going through this whole process by myself trying to figure it out. Now, I had not been on social media because I was a, I was a high school social studies teacher and the students would stalk me, which is fine, <laughs> but I don't, they don't need to know where I'm having dinner or, you know what I mean? Or anything like that. Yeah, so yeah. I had deleted all social media and um, I would only see family and stuff when I would every once in a while. Um, so here I am at this point where I need, I need help. And me being hard-headed saying, I refuse to ask for help. And that was my mentality. I didn't need anyone else's help. I had done this for most of my life on my own. Why did I need to, you know, like humble myself and beg for help? That, that was kind of like my attitude. And then my, uh, my roommate, the person that was like helping, keeping an eye on me and taking care of me, which I was very lucky to have um, found her and had been friends with her five years prior to this happening. I was very fortunate. She said, why don't we run to GoFundMe on social media? I'll run it and, you know, we'll raise some money. And I was like, what is even the point? 
You know what I mean? Like someone who's asking 250,000, like that's not going to happen. No, it's never going to happen. And she said, let me do it. Mm. And so she did. She put it together and she put it online. And um, what ended up happening is my family and friends of my family then saw the reality that I was in mm. and started calling and started asking my parents and figuring things out and seeing the state I was in. And then they started donating. And then uh, they started sharing my GoFundMe on social media. Mm. And before I knew it, I had $50,000 and then I, then I all of a sudden I had a hundred thousand dollars and then I had $250,000 and I was like, are you, and that, and I, that happened within three months. Wow. And so my hard headedness prevented, prevented me from letting others know how I was doing because I thought they didn't give, they, they gave no cares whatsoever because why would they, you know, I, this was something that this was my burden to hold, not something that they needed to concern themselves about. And I was foolish to think that because had I not shared my, what I was going through or had been vulnerable, I wouldn't be alive today. Mm. And so because of them and because of, you know, strangers, people I have no idea about, fifth cousins you know and <laughs> and you know they're just like oh i remember you when you were a kid and and, and all that it was it was it, it blew my mind it changed my perspective on everything and i was able to raise that money in three months um and once i gave it to the transplant uh hospital the financial coordinator said we've never seen anybody come up with this much money that fast who didn't have it how did you do it and i said i have no idea strangers and, and people and um if it wasn't for social media it never would have happened and like i didn't even understand social media you know because i didn't have it mm. so and had it not been for my friend who said yeah. who convinced me you know what i mean it was like all these little happenstances that happened but within three months i came up with the money everything was approved and two months later i got a call and they said, are you ready uh, for a transplant? And I was like, yes. And like, <laughs> like, it was almost like they called and it was like, hey, come on down. Like you're the yeah. next one in line. It was, it was really kind of like an unbelievable thing. You get this call and then there's like, come in. We have an organ for you. Yeah. So two months later, the day after Christmas in 2018, I went into the hospital at about 10 o'clock at night and the next morning I woke up with a brand new organ in me. And the first thing I asked the nurse when I woke up was, was it successful? And she said, yes, um, your blood sugar is 89. I think it was successful. And that was the first time my blood sugar had been above the forties or fifties mm -hmm. in almost two years on its own without me drinking juice, without me, I would just sip on Gatorade um, an orange Gatorade to keep my blood sugar up. Yeah. And it, it was just like, I started bawling my eyes out because at that moment, I, f I felt that that burden of just hypoglycemia was out of my body. It, my body was functioning as it was supposed to. It felt like it, like, um, my, like the insulin was working correctly again. It, I, I, I can't explain it. 
I, like, all I can say is like it made me feel like Superman, and mm-hmm. that was the best news I could have ever I could have ever had. And so, um, from the time I was told I had two years to live to the time I got transplant transplanted was just over two years, and I couldn't believe that I survived that. Like it, I should have been dead so many times, um, mm-hmm. and it and it didn't happen. So I feel like I, you know, I, I am alive for a reason. There's no doubt about that. Um, yeah. What specifically that is, I don't know. All I know is that I am so thankful for life and that opportunity because it changed me. Mm. Even though I had to go through hell, it changed me to be so much of a, of a more grateful and better person who understands reality and life much better. And understands that, you know, I thought that people were just mean <laughs> and they didn't <laughs> give two craps. And it really turns out that people aren't, um, they're quite kind. And when you call out in a moment of need, you'd be very surprised how many people are willing to help lift you up. Mm. And so that was kind of the whole process of raising the, the money and stuff like that. And, and here's the thing. That's, that's not for everybody. I never expected that. That was not my attitude going into it, but it, it really, it, it, it completely changed my mindset going through that and having to come up with a $250,000 and having a hospital work so closely with me and um, them being um, willing to work with me and being patient and all of that kind of stuff. Because I imagine they get a lot of people who say they're going to pay cash for it. And they just say, oh, okay, just dismissively. Okay. When you come up with the money, call us. <laughs> and uh, here I was, I, I gave it to them and it worked. Um, yeah. And I'm so thankful for that. I, I, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is an amazing, it's an amazing story and it's, and it's, I can imagine, you know, the day after Christmas in 2018, there's probably not many better Christmas presents you could have hoped for. Um, but but it is interesting, you know, you talk about that sort of putting your hand out and, and thinking, you know, nothing's going to come of this. Um, and this amazing sort of collection of people getting behind you. You know, it's, it's, it's a very inspirational story and um, one that I'm glad has sort of changed you for the better and, and, and opened your eyes to that to that extent. Um, I guess moving forwards, you know, you wake up, the, the, the transplant's been a success. Um, that immense sense of relief, not only for you, but for those, you know, closest around you. Mm-hmm. Um, how long did that sort of, did, did that sink in immediately? Or was it just a period of sort of enjoying being alive, not just having to survive anymore? Um, or was it a case of sort of once you're out of hospital that then became you know, a whole other set of issues that you had to think about. So it, at, so at first it was just total like peace mm. um, mentally and physically because it, it uh, you just learn to control chaos the best you can. But when that chaos is gone, it's, you, it's kind of like that realization that the, it, having mind and body peace because your body isn't in that state of chaos is so relieving. And suddenly I could start thinking about my future again and I could start communicating with people again. And I felt like living again. It it was just, it was crazy. And then plus all the emotions come in about everything that I had been through and, and thinking back on it. And just, there's so much that has to be processed 
And then just because I got the transplant and it was successful doesn't mean that it doesn't come with costs. Mm. So what they say is that it is a diabetic cure. But I beg to differ because if my transplant fails and I'm currently in rejection, um, I had a biopsy (laughs) today um, to see what stage of, of rejection it's in. This is my fourth time going through it. If this fails, I'm die. Um, I don't get a redo. I don't get to go back to being a hypoglycemic, unaware diabetic. My, my body has taken too much damage. So a cure would be something that you would never go back to. So it's it really, it's more of a pause in this, the status that you were in. Um, Cause I can't go back to insulin. It, my body can't do it. I can't process it correctly because it's a man-made hormone. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, this is where I get into the discussion of, well, it sounds great not having to do injections. So I'm no, I'm no longer insulin dependent, but I do have 31 years of diabetes um, on my body. I have four years of extreme damage to my body from hypoglycemia. Um, mentally, I have a lot of my brain that does, doesn't work. It can't recall memories because it's turned to gray matter. And then I'm also on anti-rejection medication for the rest of my life that's so strong that it will eventually um, do a lot of damage to my kidney. Uh, the side effects are really extreme. Um, and but but that's that's the cost of what I went through. You know, that's the mm-hmm. cost of living is I traded, that hypoglycemia unawareness for this new life. And um, I would do it again in a second, but mm-hmm. it is by no means a cure. Um, it's an, there's like, it's like an 82 to an 84% success rate. And I'm almost at two years and they can't even, they can't even consider it a, a success yet. And so there's a lot of caveats that come with it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a very unique story. And I get asked a lot about what someone has to do to get on the list <laughs> um, to get transplanted. And like my, my, my thoughts on that are you don't want to transplant. You want mm-hmm. that to be last case scenario because with the amount of technology there is today uh, with knowing how your body reacts and insulin pumps and CGMs. And even if you don't use any of that, I like, I preferred finger pricks and injections over insulin pumps and CGMs. That was just me. I grew up that way. That was what Mm -hmm. I was used to. Um, You can still have really great control of your diabetes. There's things you have to do um, besides just taking insulin to do that. You have to exercise. You have to eat right. There are things that go with it. And with the transplant, I would say it's magnified in terms of what you have to do to, to keep your body healthy. It's magnified by a hundred or a thousand or whatever you want to think, because I now have a compromised immune system to a point where a common cold takes me a month to heal from. Mm. If I get, if I get coronavirus, I know a friend right now who had a transplant that's it, that's been in the ICU for 14 days with coronavirus. Um, I can't, you know, I can't drink tap water. I can't eat undercooked meat. I can't eat certain citrus. Like there's just a lot of things that come with it because of the compromised immune system. And so it kind of 
it puts you at a place of life where mentally you can appreciate life so much more, but physically and, and abilities are are taken away enough so that you can live life, but you have to be very careful with the restrictions. Um, uh, like the vaccine that's going to come out for COVID, uh, I can't take because it's a live vaccine. Since mm-hmm. I have such a compromised immune system, I can't take a live vaccine. And so like, there's just a lot of things that you have to be aware of that come with it. And it's much more difficult to manage than diabetes. Um, way more doctor's appointments, way more yeah. blood work. But you know what? Even though those are all complaints and proof that it is not a cure, it has given me a second chance at life. I expect it to last me the rest of my life, and I'm going to enjoy every day to its fullest while I have the ability to do it. Yeah. And you know, and that's my and that's my opinion of it. Because I don't know what else to say, man. Everyone wants a <laughs> pancreas transplant, and I, just, I gotta tell you. It's not, it's not worth the pain and anguish and, you know, save it as on the back burner mm. as a last case scenario, if everything else fails and just hope that it doesn't happen. Yeah. And I think, I, th- I, th- I think that is, you know, there was so much, um, they were just talking about there that that's important, but, but that positive mindset that look, it's not ideal. It, it was, it wasn't ideal before it's not ideal now, but it's given me a whole list of things I can do now and a life that I can enjoy that I couldn't previously. Um, but I do think that fundamental message that not only for diabetics, but for those closest around me, because I, it's, you know, I know it's thrown around when I'm speaking to, to friends, you know, oh, you can, you can get a pancreas transplant, you know, these days. Um, and I think even, even for people that have type one, they maybe think, oh yeah, you know, that would be great. You know, I'd get a pancreas transplant and it'd be solved. So I think to listen to someone who, as I say, it's such a unique story and who's gone through that and to listen to them say, look, this isn't what you want. This isn't my number one choice. It never was. Um, you know, it's something that if the time comes, then it's, it's there, but it's certainly not something that, um, that as type one diabetics, we should be aiming for, um, I know obviously you mentioned the coronavirus. I can imagine, you know, as someone, because I'm aware the transplant was fairly recent. So as, as, as someone who's gone through that and as someone who, as you say, his immune system is suppressed, the pandemic probably, not that it could come at a good time, but it probably couldn't have come at much of a worse time for you. Um, but in terms of your, your outlook, it sounds like you're still, or certainly from your Instagram posts and your social media, it seems like you still have a very positive mindset despite those things. Yeah. You know, I don't live in a bubble. Um, For too many years, I was stuck not being able to live. Mm. And so I take necessary precautions. Um, I know the risk that I am putting myself at by going and, and living life. But you know, I'm smart uh, to to as to to as far as extent as I can be. I wear my mask. I carry hand sanitizer on me. I don't go in in, in large groups of people. It, it's just it's one of those things where um, I'm doing what I need to do to protect myself and, mm. and it's not stopping me from living life it is preventing me from doing things that i enjoy like going to concerts <laughs> um and uh i love comedy clubs you know they're all closed and and 
going to a restaurant and trying new food and all that kind of stuff. But you know what? That's okay because I'm able to go enjoy the ocean. I'm able to go hiking. I'm able to go exploring and I get to go do all outdoor activities, which are, which are great. It's just, it's a different way of enjoying life. And um, I think not only me, but everybody has needed to learn how to enjoy life differently and whatever new normal that is for somebody you can choose to be angry about it or you can choose to embrace it and i've decided to embrace it and make the most of it instead of just staying home um and just saying oh i refuse you know you this is bad Mm. um yeah it's bad but you don't got to stop life um there are things that you have to do and then there are things that you can still do to enjoy and um i think people have one of those two opinions of I can't believe this like you know what what did I do wrong to have this happen to me and then there's people who are making the most of it mm. um, but yeah I, I I don't complain about it this is this is life it's happening to everybody <laughs> it's yeah. I, I'm not I'm not singled out <laughs> but it, it is frightening because you know you hear you hear those stories and like I said my friend he's been in the ICU for 14 days I don't want to end up like that um but I understand that it's a risk and whether it's because I went on a hike or if it's because I had to go to the grocery store, I, I think, you know, we're all going to be exposed to it one way or another mm-hmm. at some point. And so I just, I, I make the most out of every day. And if I get any symptoms of anything, I immediately go to the transport hospital and um, they have the correct treatment plan in, in, uh, in, in place. And so I know the steps I have to take. And so I don't, I try not to let that interfere with me living life. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, as, as you say, it's, it's, it's something that you either embrace um, or, or let it control you. Um, I guess moving, you know, lastly up, up to present day, um, you know, you're an incredibly active individual within the type one community, even though, as you say, effectively you're cured, but, as we've discussed, there's some caveats to that. Um, and, and I wonder, you know, going back to something you said earlier about how growing up, having type 1 diabetes certainly made you less than, it made you a weaker person, or, or certainly that was people's perception. Is that one of the main reasons why you still ha- you still are keen to have an active role in the community and, and share your story as well? You know, I suppose... So the reason, again, I never, I never had the social media after I deleted it as a teacher. Mm-hmm. So what I, what I had to do though, because I had so many people that invested in me, they, they invested their time, they invested their energy, they invested their prayers, they invested their money in me to have this surgery. Um, in addition, someone had to die in order for me to get this transplant. Mm-hmm. And that story needed to be shared with a lot of people who were interested. And I couldn't text, you know, like doing a group text with hundreds of people doesn't work. I, I an email thing. I didn't want it to work. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go on Instagram and start just sharing my, my process post transplant so that everyone that wanted to know information about me, could follow that. And that's kind of how I got on social media. And I just share my journey, whether it be a a good day or a bad day or me enjoying life or, or be at the hospital. 
I share that, you know, um, life isn't all rainbows and unicorns, you know, life sometimes sucks. And I think it's important to share every aspect of that health wise for me, because I kept it hidden for so long. And then so many people invested in me that they need to know what's going on. I want them to know that I am doing the best I can with, with the help that they gave me and I'm not wasting it. And, and I also think that that's part of living with a transplanted organ from someone who passed away is that it didn't go to waste. Um, I, I, they gave me a second chance and I'm doing something with it. So, you know, it's not all about ooh adventures and that kind of stuff, but it is just about living. And that's what I share. Um, and I, and I, and I am able, what, what's neat to me too, is that you can, you can find me now because few people have gone through what I did and I get contacted by people who say, I can't find any information about pancreas only transplants. I can't find anyone who's been through it. Um, or, you know, I, I had diabetes for 31 years. That is a long time with, with diabetes. And so there's, I, I am not specifically a part of the diabetic community or the transplant community or the chronic illness community. It's, I'm just on there sharing, sharing your story. story. Yeah. And it's re, and it's relatable to a lot of people. And one of the big factors of me, of me wanting to do it on, on social media and kind of keep up with it, sharing my story is because there really is a lack of information, of truthful information for people that have gone through what I went through. And if I can help someone um, going through something similar, whether it be hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia or whatever it is, knowing that I literally went through hell and came out of it, um, that it gives them a little opportunity and, and hope to look forward to because there are times where you, there's nothing you can do. You're hopeless. And um, knowing that someone who's been there and has gotten through it through whatever means is it, it sparks a little bit of hope for some people. Mm-hmm. And so I'm happy to do it. This, this, this is my chance. And, and everyone that helped me get to this point gets to follow it. And I, and I feel like it's an honor that I get to do that. And I get to be that person mm-hmm. right now. Who knows? Things might change. You know, you never know what's going to happen, but that's what that's part of my life right now is is sharing my health journey. And I'm right in thinking that there's going to be a book coming out next year. Is that correct? Yeah. And I don't want to like ramble on forever, but let me tell you, (laughs) this book is not is not meant like as something as, ooh, I wrote a book or ooh, I, I make money. That has, that has nothing to do with it. The reason why I, I wrote the book was because the, the doctor who did my um, initial consultation at the transplant hospital saw me three months post-transplant. Um, and when she walked in the room to see me, she started crying. And I was like, what, what happened? And at the time she was pregnant and all this, and all this kind of stuff. And she, and she looked completely different. I didn't really recognize her. And she was like, do you remember me? And I was like, not really. And I was like, why are you crying? And she said, when you walked in here for your consultation, you looked like you were just uh, the walking dead. You, like 
I know as a medical practitioner that you were not supposed to be alive. And somehow you made it long enough to get a transplant. And I can't believe it. Look at you now. You're full of life. And she said, whatever it was that got you through that point, um, that gave you hope, that kept you going instead of giving up, that needs to be known by people. And I was like, yeah, okay. You know, it's really nice of you to say thank you. But then it kind of stuck with me because the more questions I got from people through Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that, I was like, maybe I need to talk about this. And so in two days, I was able to write my, write my entire story out. And it's not only about um, transplant, but it's a lot of other things that went on in my life. So yeah, I have a book. It was supposed to come out this summer, but with COVID, it prevented me from going out and do and, and talking to people and meeting people and stuff like that. Mm. And I want the opportunity to go out and see people face to face and stuff like that. So the publisher and I were able to hold it and we're hoping um, summer of 2021, it can be released. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's my story in more detail with a lot of other, with a lot of other factors. And uh, I'm looking forward to the opportunity to um, have it reach more people that aren't just on social media yeah. Um, yeah. because you wouldn't know me or know anything about me uh, if you weren't on um, Instagram or if you didn't have a chronic illness or anything like that. So yeah, I think- that's the hope. And, and I, you know, it is certainly a story that, that needs to be told. And as you say, there is a certain lack of um, awareness around the topic and something that you can really provide an, an insight into. Um, but certainly it's something that I'm looking for. I'll, I'll, I'll certainly be picking up a copy and having a read through. But it is, as I say, a story that I think um, a lot of people will have an interest in and just be blown away by. Um, you know, over the last hour, we've talked about various different things but to hear you speaking so openly and honestly and so matter of fact about things that realistically would knock most people for six you know and I'm sure it did for you but to hear you talk about you know someone telling you that you've got two years to live you know those are very very powerful words to hear um and to to have that positive mindset and to you know to be able to push through that and just document your journey um I'm, I'm pleased and and I think it'll be um an amazing read um I'm, I'm gonna let you go shortly because I know it's getting late in California um but it has obviously been the first time we've we've had a chance to speak um and we know we've exchanged messages on Instagram but um it has been a real real pleasure to, to speak to you today and to be able to just understand a little bit more about your journey um and, you know as a type 1 diabetic myself I can relate to certain aspects um but some of the the experiences you've had I'm just blown away by and um have the utmost respect for you so I do really appreciate you jumping on today and giving me the chance to, to get to know you a little bit better. Um, and, I, and I hope in the future that we, we, we can jump on again and, and, and have another chat. Yeah, man, that sounds great. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share my journey. No, it's not a problem at all. I wish you all the best for the festive season. I hope things are a little bit uh, return to normality in California soon enough. But in the meantime, uh, take care and stay safe. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Cheers.